You're listening to the Dietitian Cafe RD2B podcast, brought to you by New Ultra. My name is Lucy Dia and I'm a third year student dietitian. Through this podcast, we aim to share knowledge and inspire student dietitians and gain insight from knowledgeable and experienced guests. December is a crucial time for students writing a dissertation, with ethical approval applications submitted and beginning to recruit for studies. It's also a time when students might be thinking about what the future holds for their career. In this episode, I'll be joined by two dietitians, Natasha Schuler and Jennifer Tawi, who are both currently involved in dietetic research, specialising in ketogenic diets and liver transplantation, respectively. We will discuss what the role of a research dietitian looks like, the importance of dietitians working in research, and how your dissertation can be the first step into this career path. Without further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome Natasha and Jenny to the podcast. Thank you both for joining me today. To get started, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your work as a dietitian? Yes, of course. My name is Natasha Schuler, and I am a senior research fellow at UCL Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health. So basically, I'm a research dietitian in short terms, and I work in various different studies, but all focusing on ketogenic diets, so very high fat, low carbohydrate diets as a treatment for epilepsy. Uh, I work on various different studies. So one, for example, is a randomized controlled trial looking to show the effectiveness, hopefully, of the diet in under twos with epilepsy. And the one is looking at the effectiveness of a medium chain triglyceride supplement, um, which aims to get the same effects of the ketogenic diet, um, same anti-seizure effect, um, but without actually having to go on the on the full diet itself. So currently I work as a liver transplant dietitian at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. Um, I've been working here for just over five years now. Um, So currently I am predominantly doing work with prehabilitation and trying to keep people on the transplant waiting list. So this involves a lot of nutrition support, a lot of dietary manipulation, um, a lot of work with our physiotherapist as well, because a lot of it involves trying to support muscle mass and strength and um, just keeping people active, which is the bit I enjoy the most, really, because um, you don't tend to get that as much in other specialities. Um, and it's a, I just find it a really rewarding job um, and a really rewarding area to work in. Um, you know, being able to get people on the transplant list, get them through their transplant. Um, but also some people we actually can take people off the transplant list for a positive reason. So actually that nutrition support we've been able to provide them with has actually supported their liver to recompensate to a degree. So we can hold off transplant for, you know, a year, a couple of years, maybe even more. So that in itself is really rewarding. Um, So it predominantly involves a mixture of inpatient and outpatient work. Um, which again is a really good mix I think Um, it gives you you kind of use your core skills um, but it keeps it interesting mixes it up um, can make it very busy as well trying to flip between the two Um, but yeah I just think it's a really good sort of dynamic area to work in and particularly working in a transplant liver unit with the resources that we have with the level of expertise from a MDT point of view um, 
I just think I'm really fortunate to be able to have that opportunity to work with so many different people um, and to make a difference to people's lives as well. So I just, yeah, I can't see myself working in any other area now. <laughs> that sounds fantastic and really rewarding, like you say. Yes. So what actually inspired you to follow a career in research? So that really started um, when one of our specialist um, surgery physiotherapists started doing her master's and she started doing a pilot feasibility study looking at a home-based exercise program with the liver transplant population and that is an area that hadn't been explored before so there were some small studies that had been trialled in the UK, but predominantly in other countries, looking at um, exercise programs, but within hospitals. So she was really keen to look at actually, you know, instead of having to keep bringing people in hospital, could we look at whether it was feasible for that to work at home? So part of that project, she required um, dietetic support to make sure that people were eating and drinking enough. Um, because if we were going to ask them to exercise, we needed to make sure they had the nutrition support around that and also to um, keep an eye on their anthropometry, to so keep an eye on their mid-arm muscle circumference, their triceps, skin fold, their hand grip, um, because that would be, again, another important factor to consider if, if it was having any benefit to them. So that was my part within that research. And that was really the first time I'd been involved in any research. And that was only, I think it was about 2017. So I'd been working here only about a year. Um, and I, I think I was still trying to find my feet really, but I was kind of asked to be involved. And I think it's a really good opportunity to start getting involved in that, you know, in that way with research, because in one sense, it's not your responsibility. You don't really have to know a huge amount. You've got the support of the team. There's a protocol in place that you need to follow and it gives you a, a foot in the door really in a way of, understanding it and having an experience without having to feel that you have to really understand it fully um, and then from that I she the physiotherapist encouraged me to look at options of actually getting into the point and um, because I think I still felt quite new to the team and um, still trying to find my feet and understand you know what I wanted to do and how which which direction I wanted to go in um so she had so she did her master's through one of the health education England NIHR um sort of master's bridging programs which was a semi-funded bridging program which gave opportunity to have access to a academic tutor um, it gave you opportunity to a wider team outside of the hospital, so linked with the university, um, for sort of academic support, really, and supervisors who had experience in clinical research. Um, so there, were, there was an application out, um, which I think the closing date was about two or three days later, which is really typical, isn't it? It's always last minute with these things. Um, and it was for a clinical academic sort of bridging programme, so a small scheme bridging programme, which was 30 days funded. So buying you out of your clinical time, essentially, to have some taught sessions and some self-directed learning sessions to learn the basics of research. Um, and you sort of had to put your application through as to why you wanted to 
do um and what they were really keen to see was that was to look for people who felt they wanted at some point to have a clinical academic career so that is working as a clinical dietitian but completing and actively involved in research at the same time so I sort of I thought why not I threw an application together got through the interview um I think it helps that I'm really passionate about liver so ask me a question about it and I'll talk about it for hours so I think that helps I think that's what got me through the interview um and actually it kind of joined the dots together for me to see that there was perhaps something missing and probably what I was looking for was actually I if I don't if I don't fully understand something so you know the advice that we give to patients predominantly it's based on very old research and if you look at sort of a lot of papers in terms of requirements and cirrhotic eating patterns sort of the, the general things most general dietitians would have an idea of how to manage a liver patient the references and the evidence is very old and a lot of the literature is just repeated literature reviews looking at similar references and that just didn't feel quite enough for me and I wanted to understand it better and particularly when patients ask you questions sometimes you can get caught off guard really good question it's not been looked at in a long time but you know this I know it works I'm just going to tell you it works and this is what we do and we'll see you know we'll, we'll demonstrate that but that didn't feel enough for me so actually it, I guess it kind of lit a fire to actually encourage me to understand things better and to actually perhaps update the evidence base a little bit more um so there's a very long-winded way of kind of explaining it essentially but I think for me it was just the right opportunity, the right supportive people and being encouraged to push myself actually led me down a path that actually felt really comfortable for me and was actually something that I didn't know I was missing, if that makes sense. I did kind of fall into it by accident, I have to say. So when I was doing my MSc in, first of all, human nutrition, um, I came across ketogenic diets. And for instance, I have, I'm like family with epilepsy. Um, it just sort of really struck a chord. And I thought, okay, so I'm going to have to do some delving into this. And it, it literally was just a sentence on a slide as part of a some, a, some presentation that had nothing to do with ketogenic diets whatsoever. And I was like, yeah, okay. So I started looking into this um, and I was like, oh, this is actually, this is a treatment for epilepsy and other things, but evidence is, is, is best for epilepsy. Um, and I was like, wow, okay. So I started um, looking into it more as part of my dissertation. And then I just, I just, I kept on with, with that as, I don't know, I just really kept on looking into it and looking into the evidence behind it. And then I got in touch with some other people within the field, medics, um, mostly medics and at UCL, et cetera, that were involved with it. And then that led to the, um, the PhD. Um, so it was it wasn't necessarily that I fell into research. It was more the topic area that um, inspired me. But then from that, because I wanted to make make a difference, as we all do, um, that's where the, the sort of the, the drive to further evidence um, the area. Um, that's really what drove me to, to keep on with the research. Fantastic. And we can hear your passion coming across there for the research area, especially. <laughs> so you've touched on it a little bit there, but but why ketogenic diets in particular? Obviously, there's so many topics that that we can get into, but ketogenic yeah, yeah. diets. Well, so for me, ketogenic diets was it was because of a, a, a personal collection uh, connection that had um, a family member with with epilepsy, and I just thought it was 
I've never heard of it before. Um, well, I'd heard of ketogenic diets, but not as a treatment for epilepsy. And I just thought, okay, wow, that's something that can really make a difference. It's like truly a, a medical therapy. Um, it's something that has its roots um, very far back <laughs> in time, like biblical times, Hippocrates era, et cetera, et cetera. There are these um, citations of people fasting to people with epilepsy who are fasting and they, some of them, their seizures stopped or they, they got less. And then there was some initial evidence, like in the, the 1920s example, mostly from the States um, and also France, um, as a, using high-fat, low-carbohydrate diets as a way to um, mimic the state of starvation on the body. And then it all kind of fell into disarray for various reasons, and yeah, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure it's a plethora of other reasons as well. Um, but then it really started to come back again in the 1990s. And by the time I started my PhD, there had been the first randomized controlled trial within, to show the effectiveness of ketogenic diets in children with epilepsy, um, which was headed by um, like the head of my research group. But that it was still very, very, very early days. And it was still sort of as a nutritional therapy. I think a lot of um, people outside of the, the profession, they noted it, they don't really realise that there is solid evidence behind it, at least at the time, because it was, um, there was only one randomised control trial, there are now um, more. And so I was inspired from the, the, the personal family connection as well, but then also because of the, the no relative novelty, sort of, <laughs> um, in the area to really try and um, drive it forward, really. One of our specialist um, surgery physiotherapists started doing her master's and she started doing a pilot feasibility study looking at a home-based exercise program with the liver transplant population and that is an area that hadn't been explored before so there were some small studies that had been trialed in the UK but predominantly in other countries looking at um, exercise programs but within hospitals so she was really keen to look at actually you know instead of having to keep bringing people in hospital could we look at whether it was feasible for that to work at home so part of that project she required um, dietetic support to make sure that people were eating and drinking enough and um, because if we were going to ask them to exercise we needed to make sure they had the nutrition support around that and also to um, keep an eye on their anthropometry, to so keep an eye on their mid-arm muscle circumference, their triceps, skin fold, their hand grip, um, because that would be, again, another important factor to consider if, if it was having any benefit to them. So that was my part within that research. And that was really the first time I'd been involved in any research. And that was only, I think it was about 2017. So I'd been working here only about a year. Um, and I, I think I was still trying to find my feet really, but I was kind of asked to be involved. And I think it's a really good opportunity to start getting involved in that, you know, in that way with research, because in one sense, it's not your responsibility. You don't really have to know a huge amount. You've got the support of a team. There's a protocol in place that you need to follow and it gives you a, a foot in the door really in a way of, understanding it and having an experience without having to feel that you have to really understand it fully um, and then from that I she the physiotherapist encouraged me to look at options of actually getting 
Olympic point because um, I think I still felt quite new to the team um, still trying to find my feet and understand you know what I wanted to do and how which which direction I wanted to go in um, so she had so she did her master's through one of the health education England NAHR um, sort of master's bridging programs which was a semi-funded bridging program which gave opportunity to have access to a academic tutor um, it gave you opportunity to a wider team outside of the hospital so links with the university um, for sort of academic support really and supervisors who had experience in clinical research um, so there, were, there was an application out, um, which I think the closing date was about two or three days later, which is really typical, isn't it? It's always last minute with these things. Um, and it was for a clinical academic sort of bridging program. So a small scheme bridging program, which was 30 days funded. So buying you out of your clinical time, essentially, to have some taught sessions and some self-directed learning sessions to learn the basics of research. Um, and you sort of had to put your application through as to why you wanted to do it. Um, and what they were really keen to see was that was to look for people who felt they wanted at some point to have a clinical academic career. So that is working as a clinical dietitian, but completing and actively involved in research at the same time. So I sort of, I thought, why not? I threw an application together, got through the interview. Um, I think it helps that I'm really passionate about liver. So ask me a question about it and I'll talk about it for hours. So I think that helps. I think that's what got me through the interview. Um, and actually it kind of joined the dots together for me to see that there was perhaps something missing and probably what I was looking for was actually I if I don't understand if I don't fully understand something so you know the advice that we give to patients predominantly it's based on very old research and um, if you look at sort of a lot of papers in terms of requirements and cirrhotic eating patterns sort of the, the general things most general dietitians would have an idea of how to manage a liver patient the references and the evidence is very old and a lot of the literature is just repeated literature reviews looking at similar references and that just didn't feel quite enough for me and I wanted to understand it better and particularly when patients ask you questions sometimes you can get caught off guard really good question it's not been looked at in a long time but at, you know this I know it works I'm just going to tell you it works and this is what we do and we'll see you know we'll demonstrate that but that didn't feel enough for me so actually I guess it kind of lit a fire to actually encourage me to understand things better and to actually perhaps update the evidence base a little bit more um so there's a very long-winded way of kind of explaining it essentially but I think for me it was just the right opportunity the right supportive people and being encouraged to push myself actually led me down a path that actually felt really comfortable for me and was actually something that I didn't know I was missing if that makes sense absolutely it's fascinating to hear about the journey that you've taken and also about the influence of other health professionals around you is really interesting as well um, you mentioned there that you're passionate about the liver. So I just have to ask, why did you choose to specialise in liver transplantation? What is it about it that just drew you to that area? So it's just so, I mean, I know it won't be to everyone, but I just find it so interesting. Like the liver is just, to me, an incredible organ. Um, it's so vital to, you know, to digestion. It's so vital to kind of what underpins 
what we want to do as dietitians is to support people's nutrition in any way, whether that's nutrition support, sort of healthy living, recovering, or, you know, working up for surgery. It's so vital to that. And that needs more support. Nutrition really is the key that underpins a liver, just a liver patient in general. You know, you can give them medications to, to manage symptoms, but those medications won't correct any impairment of glycogen, it won't stop the fact that they can't utilize nutrition properly. It won't stop the fact that they can't absorb things properly. That all comes from dietary manipulation and nutrition support and thing about it. Actually, we're the core MDT member within that. And, you know, we're really lucky here at our center that our consultants truly believe that and they're very supportive of that. And a lot of the clinics that we work in, you know, they will you know, spend a few minutes with the patient and say, look, I'm going to send you to, to the person that actually you need to see and spend the most time with. And we, you know, we have a, we're at the centre of a lot of those clinics for that reason. So it gives you that opportunity to really change that person's future or their quality of life. Um, and you, you're kind of their kind of key support within all of their their sort of treatment journey and their hospital visits and you're their main contact really so you don't always get that in other specialities um, and there's so much you can do there's so much to think about um, which is really daunting at first and it's not an easy speciality to start out in at all but actually with the right ambition and the right attitude to just take a breather and understand that it's the learning process and there's a lot to it but once you kind of get that underpinning um it's a really just a really rewarding and dynamic area to work in what are your goals with your research then good question now the goals of my research it that actually depends on the specific study um that you're looking at at the time but i guess there are some overarching aims that that would cover all of them so I'll give you some examples I have um, some other work that's that's ongoing looking at biomarkers of response to ketogenic diets Um, so for example I'm looking at certain um, parameters in the blood just from retrospective data at the moment but still we it will be prospective data at some point um, in the blood certain carnitine species that certain ones of them seem to be associated with either improved or not improved response to ketogenic diet and when I say response I mean at least 50% reduction in seizure frequency so the aim with that very long term, of course, would be to better hone down who would be targets for treatment with ketogenic diet therapy. Um, so that which which is which I guess that's kind of overlapping with the infant one. But this is not specific to infants. That would be across the board. And of course, realistic in, in realizing that it won't ever really be this one thing in the blood that then shows us that this candidate will respond very well to ketogenic diet. It's not going to be as simple as that, unfortunately. It's going to be together with a myriad of other factors, their their clinical history, everything, their their syndrome, everything, everything. But it might help give us a little bit more of a clue. And then, for example, with um, one of the other studies, uh, looking at the effect of certain supplements with 
about having to go on the that is a about increasing accessibility to dietary treatment not necessarily to the ketogenic diet itself but by making some sort of um, non-pharmacological therapy more widely available for people who either don't have access to ketogenic diets and um, because they are you know they are in very specialist services um, across the country and the world um, but also a people who, who may have access to it, but may not have tolerated the ketogenic diet or the, like, as in, you know, they may have had side effects able to cope with the complexities and the restrictions of the diet. Um, so yeah, they they have specific goals for, for certain studies, but overall, I guess it's about um, making, ev- improving the evidence base for various types of ketogenic diet so that more people who, for whom it's appropriate can get access to the treatment and hopefully it will help them um, obviously not all of them but for, for a proportion of them it's it, it certainly would and also to particularly with, with um honing down who would be better candidates or worse candidates and then you prioritize something else um for this particular treatment so my goals are really just to see if there is anything that we're missing with what we're doing at the moment so <laughs> There's a lot that we know underpins nutrition support in these patients. You know, a lot that isn't going to change. You know, you're breathy there and, you know, we're not necessarily going to change that, but actually what is it that we're missing? So currently I'm doing a master's in research and my thesis is looking at, um, so it's just an observational study just to make it manageable and just to kind of understand the basics first. Um, But I'm looking at whether um, hepatic encephalopathy, which is a symptom of liver disease, so it can cause um, confusion, disorientation, challenges with coordination, reverse sleep pattern. It's really debilitating condition for somebody to have. And just from seeing these patients within clinical practice over time, I've just noticed they eat very differently. They sleep very differently, they move very differently. They present very differently when we measure their muscle mass and their hand grip and we ask about activity. Um, so my research is trying to understand how that symptom alone impacts them differently. So we're going to be comparing patients with the hepatic encephalopathy to those with chronic liver disease, but they don't have a diagnosis of that. So actually, it's looking at should we be assessing them differently? You know, should we be thinking about how to manage them differently? Should our advice be, you know, how different should our advice be to those patients who don't have the encephalopathy? And it's just actually just trying to build on quite an under-researched area. So there's there's a hot topic at the moment in liver looking at the microbiome. Um, I'm sure you know everyone's heard it in lots of different areas um, but it's a hot topic in liver at the moment because there's more evidence coming out that actually the microbiome is a huge influence for hepatic encephalopathy that the medics in particular are doing lots and lots of research on and that's what I find actually a lot of the research within liver is done by medics um, particularly medics in America which is great they've got the resources they've got you know a lot more years experience than, than some of us dietitians and um, you know fairly new to practice still it feels um but actually what then I always feel they miss something they miss the core of what we do as dietitians and it's actually keeping the patient at the center of it and making it practical 
And that's what we're looking for. So we know there's lots of evidence out there, gold standards for, look, for measuring sarcopenia with CT scans or MRI or DEXA. But we all know that in reality, that's not going to happen in practice. It's not going to happen at the bedside. So part of my research is looking at with these patient groups, can we measure it any differently? And is that right for that patient group? So we'll be looking at some different bedside measurements of measuring sarcopenia. So looking at muscle ultrasound, for example, um, and different ways of assessing their function and having different objective measures. So um, essentially the goal of my research is to try and keep it patient-centered, make it practical and feasible for dietitians to actually be able to change any practice if that's required. Um, and also just to increase the voice and the, the presence and profile of dietitians in research because it's lacking hugely. Um, so yeah, so again, you know, it's great that you, you know, you've got this uh, as a topic of conversation for your podcast, because it's a really important area that um, needs a lot more work. So you mentioned that you're sort of balancing inpatients, outpatients, your masters, and obviously you're kind enough to have joined us today. So I'm curious what a typical work week looks like for you. Very busy is <laughs> probably the best summary. Um, and partly funded um, for research time still. So that will be coming to an end shortly, unfortunately. So I was funded um, through an NIHR scheme um, through, it's called a pre-doctoral clinical academic programme. Um, and there are, are lots of different programmes that are run by Health Education England to support dietitians to have some funded protected time to update and improve and increase their skills and knowledge within research. Um, so I was awarded that in 2019. That will be coming to an end soon. But at the moment, I do. So I'm clinical all day on a Monday. So I do a pre-assessment transplant clinic. So um, prior to them actually having their full transplant assessment, it's kind of like a a prehab clinic, you could say, a bit of a screening clinic. Um, and it's an early opportunity for us to identify any patients who we think are going to struggle and need a bit more time before they have their transplant assessment. And it gives us time to give them an early plan to work on so that when they do come for transplant assessment, um, you know, they've had a bit of improvement, hopefully. Um, and then I tend to go to the ward on um, in the afternoon, so that would be um, just generally on a Monday, it tends to be feeds and um, any sort of high priority patients that have come in over the weekend, um, Tuesdays. Um, so I'm one of the joint team leaders um, in our team. So we have an operational band seven meeting um, just to kind of talk about the department. And then I have a few hours of my sort of protected research time after that. I try to protect it as much as possible. It doesn't always happen. Um, but I try and sort of do my little odds and ends screen for recruitment patients, um, which is what I've been doing more at the moment now that I've been able to start my study um, and try and book people in and make sure I've got all the right blood forms and all the right equipment I need when I actually see them for the study. And then in the afternoon, I'll do um, a transplant waiting list clinic. So there's two dietitians in that clinic and two physios, along with three consultants. Um, so it's an incredibly busy clinic. Um, it's a very challenging clinic, um, and particularly at the moment, because a lot of our patients have had to wait a very long time and are still waiting for a transplant because of all the delays and cancellations. Um, so, yeah, that 
it, it's the core of our work really that clinic it's our opportunity to, to catch up with people who perhaps we've not seen for a little while and just make sure they're okay to stay on the list essentially um and then wednesday morning i'm back in clinic and i do a high intensity alcohol clinic so that's again kind of pre-transplant so it's making sure that um, patients are ready to go ahead for transplant assessment a lot of that is feeding people through for ng feeds they tend to come to that clinic quite decompensated quite sarcopenic um, but again it's a nice joint mdt clinic so there's um alcohol liaison nurse specialist there's a consultant um, and there's me so they see us all so it's a really nice opportunity to to understand people from different angles as well and and sort of speak with other team members to try and understand patients better um, and then i have another ward session in the afternoon tend to catch up on inpatient transplant assessments in that session. So if there's any that have come in for transplant assessment as an inpatient, I'll see them then. Then Thursdays, I get a breather and I get to work from home at the moment. <laughs> and I can do, it's a whole day protected for research time. So again, I try and catch up on reading any journals, which I'm sure we've all got long lists that we keep, that we hope we'll go to one day to read. Um, so I try and catch up on some of those catch up on emails um if i've got a study patient booked in that's the day i tend to try and do them um and then just try and make sure that all my databases are up to date and things at the moment um and then friday mornings it's normally bedlam running around on the ward trying to see anybody else who hasn't been seen yet and make sure they're all seen before the listing meeting and then i try and clear Friday afternoon for just catching up on odds and ends really and doing handovers and that kind of thing so it sounds really nice and, and clear when you say it out loud it definitely doesn't happen that way um but generally um that's kind of how my week tends to go it's actually very different and it depends at what stage each study is at as you say yes there are various different ones going on at different times and they're all at different so examples of things that I might be doing would be seeing patients for example with the um the supplement study that I was talking about earlier um actually seeing patients making a plan with them increasing the dose of of that particular supplement and the dietary analysis etc etc so more more similar to what you'd think of as a normal clinical dietitian role but it's your appointments are specifically for that study if you get me obviously still using your clinical skills etc but for that specific purpose and then other bits of it will be data analysis so some stats, some gathering data and changing that all about, which is a, a lot more sort of desk based. Also writing protocols for, for further studies or like the next stage, for example. Uh, if I'm working on a particular manuscript, that will often be quite desk based. Um, so going, going for the literature, writing introduction, that obviously bringing in the data analysis, discussion, liaising with other people. And also brainstorming ideas for the next study. Um, we What's quite hot now is um, patient and public involvement. Um, so right from the beginning, um, even setting what the next study will be. So before you even know what it's going to be, you might have an idea, but you really want to check that that is in line with what other people, so namely the patients really, think is important to them as well. A fair amount of liaison with um stakeholders which includes um, certain charities and industry but also patients and, and parents um, regarding 
setting research priorities for future studies and then also um, deciding together how best to set up these studies so that obviously it will work best for the people who will be involved. So it's a mixture of desk-based stuff, seeing patients and also liaising with, with other people outside of the, the immediate study population. I myself don't do that well really any but other um, research researchers and research dietitians may spend time in in the laboratory as well doing certain things well it sounds like a, a massive mix of things that you've got going on is, yeah. yeah absolutely yeah. um so do you think it's it's important that more dietitians start to pursue roles in research oh yes of course I do uh it's as, as I'm sure you're aware it's quite new that dietitians are really starting to lead in this, not just in the areas generally research. Um, it used to be all down to the medics or biochemists, et cetera, et cetera. But now really dietitians and other allied health professionals are really starting to get involved in this, um, both the pre-doctoral level, doctoral level, post-doctoral level, et cetera, which is great because we need a voice, of course, and we can give a different angle to things. And I think particularly dietitians actually are very good at working together in multidisciplinary <laughs> teams. And that's everything we do or a lot of what we do is integral to that team involving the patient, involving the medic, involving, let's say, the physio, depending on, on what exactly the treatment is. And it's we're only going to move forward by having everyone involved in those um, in, in those things. So in, in creating future future research studies, et cetera. So yeah, absolutely. Of course I'm biased, but there's good reason for it. Definitely. I, I think it's so important. And I think, you know, students and new graduates coming through are the, are the prime people to catch and inspire and educate on how it can happen and just how important it is. You know, I think for myself, that wasn't really anything ever really discussed when I trained or when I graduated. Um, and I, I guess that hasn't been a detriment to me, but I guess to some people it may have been. And I think a lot of it is just confidence and knowledge um, and knowing where to look and who to go to. And yes, the NHS is always pressured and clinically it's always pressured, but actually, you know, if we go back to what is it that we're advising people and where do we get that from? It's evidence-based and we need to make sure that the evidence base is up to date and that we're leading on that because, you know, we're the ones who are advising it. We're the ones who understand patients the most and we get to know our patient group and how what we say can fit into their life, essentially. Um, and I think we're the, the right people to keep it practical and make sure that, you know, what is out there it can actually happen. Um, and I think some nutrition research is completed by, you know, non-dietitians essentially. Um, and I think just for yourself, it, it's, yes, it's so important for your patients, but also for your own self-development and your own learning and your own confidence and your skill set. Because it isn't just a case of, you know, changing and updating the evidence base. If you think what's involved to get to that point, it's networking, it's improving your confidence and your communication skills with talking to other people, 
just finding out who the right person is to speak to is a skill in itself I find um, and something that was a big learning curve for me and really pu- pushed me outside of my comfort zone um, but actually I've got so much from that and I'm so much more confident and I can translate that into even just in-service meetings or speaking to other people within you know my clinical setting you know it's given me more confidence to be able to do that um, but just generally just all the things you'll learn so keeping up databases your timekeeping um you know just utilizing different clinical skills you'll learn along the way um you know there's lots of things that i'm doing now as part of my study that i wouldn't be doing in clinical practice normally um and just even learning how silly things like blood forms and which blood bottle goes into what. And there's just so many things that you learn that you don't think you need to know, but actually it's so helpful to know that because then you can support somebody else and that's how it grows and that's how it builds and that's how the cycle continues. And, and you know, who you could be that person to then motivate and push somebody else to do that and that's actually really rewarding in itself um so definitely anybody out there that's even remotely considered um doing it you know start as soon as you can and it doesn't have to be full research audit service evaluations just you know a topic that you're interested in that is really important but you know when you're starting within your new graduate role you know just openly speak about you know a little project that you can start and it might take a year to build that database but actually that database is there it's being built you can always go back to it at some point um so just yeah any just little things I think is really key to start with so just to follow on from what you've said there can you tell us why it's so important that dietitians prioritize evidence-based practice yeah, I think it's, it's just the key to what we do. We're Without having that up-to-date evidence, I feel like we're not able to give the best to our patients. Um, and that's what we're here for. We're, we're here to advise, our, you know, to advise our patients on what is the right thing for them in managing their, um, you know, their condition or even if it's just something acute. We are the people to be leading on that. We've got the skill set. We've got the knowledge. That's what we're trained to do. Um, And I think if we all had the attitude of, um, you know, it's not up to me. Somebody else can look at that. Somebody else could research that. Somebody else could understand that better. If we all did that, we'd never learn. We'd never grow. And we'd never keep up with the medical world. So it's so important that even if it's just a small part of adding something to an update in the evidence base even if it is audit actually if nothing's changed great that means what we're saying is still true it doesn't always have to be that we're demonstrating something new but it's actually demonstrating that we're still considering what's important and still reviewing and making sure that what we're saying um is the right thing to say but again as i said earlier we need to raise our profile within the literature within the research world um and I just think that's so important moving forward because it you know it's the advice that we're delivering well I get the fairly obvious answer is so that we assure that we're doing the best by our patients of course isn't it um absolutely so we're not just giving them any old any old therapy it's really based on sound knowledge but I wouldn't just 
uh, go with, let's say, the trust guidelines or something like that, I would really try and encourage individuals to look into the evidence base themselves and understand it a little bit better and understand the complexities. That's really how we um, learn. You're not going to do clinical research yourself. It still is really valuable for your clinical practice um, to, to understand more around the area, whatever that is, and whatever band um, of dietetics you're in as well. Did you find that your dissertation project was an introduction to research for you? Yeah, I really did, actually. I really, really did. Um, so my dissertation in my essay was to do, I mean, I, I chose it. So fairly obviously it was to do with sort of ketogenics, low glycemic index diets, and then obviously the glycemic response to them and whether some sort of ketosis was going to be induced by that. It wasn't. But anyway, it was in that area. Um, and it, it the subject area, obviously, I loved, but actually what I loved most was coming up with my own ideas and discussing them with my supervisor, discussing them with whoever, and then trying to draw my own conclusion. And I actually included human participants um, in my sort of little mini study, um, which was great. And at, at that point, actually, so I wasn't a registered dietitian at that point. It was that only came after and it, that definitely was the start of me um really realizing that I wanted not only research but a patient facing um research role so it definitely was it definitely triggered it um and I actually really liked being able with the dissertation to to a look into the background um and fully understand the the topic but also to then have time in theory to think about the results and to think about the implications of it um, yeah, a lot of uh, cogitation. <laughs> I, I like that bit. <laughs> Food for thought. <laughs> so myself, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are currently in the process of putting together a dissertation, oh, yeah, and I'm sure we're working very hard on it. Um, so do you have any top tips for students currently working on their dissertation? So I would say, if you can, make sure it's just a topic that you're interested in. <laughs> I know it's sometimes a bit tricky, and I know when I did my dissertation, we were sort of just given a list to sort of pick off, and whoever got there fastest <laughs> could could pick and um, could get there first. It's probably changed, um, you know, and I think it will be different at different universities. But just make sure it's something that you're interested in you know utilize you know the team around you and utilize each other and work together on it um you know you you can't do it alone and that's the same with anything it, you know these things are best when they're done with a team um and just start small don't you know it, it can be a bit overwhelming particularly if there's you know any sort of statistics involved or spreadsheets or data collection it's about just taking a step back thinking really what is what is the topic what do you want to get out of it and what's the best route to get to the answer essentially um and then break it down into small chunks um because it's it's very difficult to sort of do anything in big stems you just break it down into really small chunks um um, and, and set some little deadlines as well so you've got some goals to achieve too because I think if you don't if you're not strict with yourself I would say most people will just find that there's always a reason why it's not done and you've not moved on so just really small steps set some little deadlines um, I love a list I love a checklist with a little 
date that I need to achieve it by or um, just something I can cross off and see that it's done as small as it is even if it's you know writing down exactly what it is you're going to do that's a tip something you can cross off um, and don't panic is the key you know it's again it's about what else can you get out of it even if you find actually it was a really stressful experience or you didn't particularly enjoy it always reflect back and think right but what have I learned from it there's something positive to come out of this um and actually you can then whatever skills you picked up you might not have enjoyed the topic or you might not have enjoyed I don't know understanding the statistics of it or pulling the spreadsheet together whatever it is there'll be something from it that you can take and move forward and I think that's the key it's always trying to look at you know what you've got out of it rather than what you haven't got out of it you will get through it you definitely will so whether it's an undergrad whether it's a postgrad dissertation of course would encourage you to get stuck in particularly in this sort of introduction bit actually um to read around the topic I don't care whether you need to do that for your actual like the requirements for your for the degree I don't think that necessarily matters I think what matters is your your learning so I would I mean it sounds bad but go go above and beyond if you if you can because that's what's going to a help you and b um, make you more enthusiastic um, for area or just for the research process in general uh, that would yeah that would be my top tip I have to say um, and if you if you feel that research is your bag then I would absolutely go and talk to some people at the university um, well if it's not your university another university if you know what topic area you're particularly interested in which by the way you'd be very lucky if you do because not everyone not everyone does do they if you happen to do two notes what I did literally and you go find them go talk to them hey can we can we let, let's set something up let well can I get involved can I help you in any way offer your time and you never know you never know what may happen um don't feel like no matter what uh level your dissertation is at so whether it's undergrad whether it's postgrad whatever don't feel that you can't make a difference with it because you absolutely can. At the very least, you can get a publication out of it. Like that, I think, would, would be absolutely fabulous that any dissertation to have a out of it. And that also really drives you because you, you get that reward, don't you? That, that automatic reward. You can see your, your hard work in, in black and white. And yeah, it's much deserved. That's fantastic advice. And I'll definitely take, be taking that on board myself because <laughs> I'm in that position right now. Yeah. So aside from dissertation, then, if you could go back in time and give advice to your student self, knowing mm. everything that you know now, what would that advice be? I actually, to be honest, the one of the most um, valuable bits of advice I would give myself is to try to disconnect from the work which I think is actually very very hard to do when you're studying again at whatever level um, because it's constant especially now that it's it's online isn't it um, it's very hard to differentiate between your studying or work life and then your your personal life and they, they very often basically become one and the same and I think it's very it's hard but it's very important to try and set some time to not think about it okay but actually I think overall it it then you know it gives you more energy if you like to to go and throw yourself into your studies when you've got that time and you are a little bit rested you have disconnected etc etc yeah that would be it I mean I've always 
um, my personality is quite studious and I like to sort of sit there and get involved, which is great, but I've over time come to realise the importance of actually, no, being strict with yourself and setting some time to disconnect and then you come back to it fresh and you do it so much better. So that would that would be my, my main bit of advice to um, there's probably so much I would tell my student self back then. Um, I think just, I think the key thing is you never quite know where you're going to end up and you never quite know what your interest is going to be and what opportunities are going to come your way. So don't worry about what the future holds. There are plenty of jobs out there. There are lots of opportunities. Um, so, you know, just go with what feels comfortable to start with. Um, and, you know, just think about what you can get out of your graduate job. And that's the key. It's about core skills to start with. Think about, you might have an area of interest, but actually get your core skills started. And like I said, make sure there is some kind of research or service evaluation opportunities there and ask that when, you know, when you're going for interviews, you always get asked what, you know, have you got any questions for us? Try and understand where, you know, where it is you're looking to work, try and understand what opportunities they can offer you. Um, and actually that will reflect quite well on yourself as well, that you're thinking about the importance of not just, you know, getting through a, a long list of patients and can you manage that? Um, actually you're looking to self-develop and also you know develop the departments and raise the profile of the department by you know developing in, in service development and that's actually something really it's a really core cool skill but sometimes gets a little bit lost with graduate dietitians in particular um, because it tends to be you know band five caseload tends to be general medicine wards or just lots and lots of wards with a big caseload and, and trying to can you prioritize from that but actually you just need to think what are you going to get from it as well um and yeah anything can happen dietetics is a small world but it's a big world and there are lots of opportunities out there um, and just network don't be afraid to talk to others use social media is great it's a great platform it's a great way of getting to know others and seeing the work of others um, and don't be afraid to talk to people because that's how you learn and that's how you grow um, and you never know that person might be that you know somebody you, you can utilize in the future um, you know to, to work with clinically or to work on a little project with and you never know where that's going to take you so so yeah that would be my advice. Thank you to both of our guests for their time today and for sharing their valuable experience with us. It's been insightful to hear about the work of research dietitians and it's certainly inspired me to consider research as part of my own future career. Both Natasha and Jenny's social media handles can be found in the show notes. A huge thank you once again to New Ultra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Dietitian Cafe RD2B podcast, consider subscribing and leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more RD2Bs. You can also follow New Altra on social media at New Altra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening. Our next episode will be out soon.